these big productions and for something to be impressive, for something to be meaningful and something to capture attention that we've got to put on a big production of something. But I want to remind you as we start this message tonight, I want to remind you that the Lord reduced everything down to the most simple terms when He gave the ordinances. I mean, how much more simple can it get than to immerse someone in water or simply to take the fruit of the vine and the bread and uh, eat and drink that. I, and by the way, we don't want to do anything to try to embellish that, or we literally, I think, destroy it. I mean, it speaks for itself. It is what it is. And so tonight, I invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. This is, I believe, our third message on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And tonight I'm going to speak about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Last week we talked about the elements. Tonight we speak about the purpose. Next week, I I really think probably next week uh, will be the message that maybe answers more questions that people have than, than any of the other messages because it will have to do with the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, But tonight, I just want us to focus on this one thought, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And maybe you've got it all figured out, or maybe you think you do and you don't. There just might be more to it than what you've thought of. Verse 23, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, "...for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you." that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Far too often I think that people partake of the Lord's Supper without really understanding what they're doing. Now, I'm glad that the only pastor that I ever had always put a lot of emphasis on the Lord's Supper. We never thought about observing the Lord's Supper without very clear instruction being given beforehand. A lot of times nowadays, people just forget all of that and just go right into it, assuming that everybody knows what it is all about, and I think that's a big mistake. Well, it's not a new mistake, however, because the the, the saints there at Corinth were guilty of misusing the Lord's Supper, and that misuse caused all kinds of problems. And so Paul is writing to correct this situation. Now, I want you to notice something very important to begin with, and that's this, that Paul is not merely expressing his opinion. Look at verse 23. He says, "...for I have received of the Lord..." that which also I delivered unto you. 
He wanted it to be understood that he is relating to them what he had received from the Lord. In other words, Paul didn't make any of this up. Paul didn't get any of it by tradition, but he is saying, look, this is what the Lord gave me. This is what I'm giving you. That ought to be said of every message that a preacher preaches, that this is the message God gave me and I'm delivering it to you. Nailing down that fact, he goes on and gives us four reasons as to why we observe the Lord's Supper. Notice in verse 25, reason number one is responsibility. Notice he says, this do ye. Now, if we didn't have any other reason, if nothing else was revealed, we would be obligated to obey this command. I mean, we don't have the right to just pick and choose from the Bible the commands that we will obey and those that we won't obey. Whenever the Lord speaks, we ought to obey without any hesitation. We ought to do it because the Lord said do it. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, He said do it. So we ought to. Several years ago, as we were preparing to observe the Lord's Supper, a woman approached me and uh, and said that she uh, was going to refuse to participate because of a certain sin in her life. Her reasoning was that I don't want to be a hypocrite, and so I'm going to abstain. Now, she thought, and you could tell by just uh, the way she looked and the way she talked, she thought that sounded really spiritual. You know, I, I, you know, I'm just not going to participate this time. There's a certain sin in my life, and I, I just think that I ought to, you know, I ought to abstain from observing the Lord's Supper. In other words, this is what she's saying. Instead of repenting of my sin and making things right with God, I'm just not going to participate. Well, let me tell you, that's not the way to deal with the problem. It'd be much better to do what we need to do in order to make things right with God, and that way she could have partaken of the Lord's table with a clear conscience. And so there are some that use that excuse. Now, on the other hand, there are those who for no apparent reason just fail to attend when the ordinance is being observed. It's not necessarily that they think there's some horrible sin in their life. It's just the fact of the matter is, you know, it's just not really all that important to them. Some might even think of it as, well, just kind of boring, you know. There's no four-part harmony or no, you know, no... No gospel quartet coming in to sing, or there's no great orator preaching a message or anything like that. But for whatever reason, they, they just don't show up. In other words, they're not willing to set aside their plans in order to participate in the Lord's table. Now, for people like that, they need to be reminded of what Jesus said in Luke chapter number 6. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? In other words, what gives us the right to ignore Him? Now notice he says, this do ye. I mean, that ought to settle it. You know, how can we call ourselves a Christian and then not follow Christ? Now, listen, none of us do it perfectly. We understand that. But that ought to be our goal. Perfect 
obedience. I don't know of anyone that obeys the Lord perfectly 100% of the time, but some folks do a lot better job than others do. When it comes to the Lord's table, this is our responsibility as a church to observe it. And whenever we schedule it, every member of the church ought to be present to participate. Now, I know there might be some that are sick, some providentially hindered, or for whatever reason, they just absolutely cannot be there. But if that's not the case, we ought to be there to participate. So it is a responsibility, but I want you to notice also, and you find this in verse 24 and 25, not only is it a responsibility, but it also is a reminder. Notice in both of those verses this phrase where he says, in remembrance of me. Those words have been carved and painted on communion tables around the world. You've I don't know, uh, is, is, is that what we have on there? There you go. And so all around the world there are communion tables sitting in churches with those words, this do in remembrance of me. Now that very thought opens the door to a thousand different sermons. I mean, you could use this text in a lot of different ways. And so whenever I think about this, I'm just at a at a loss is where to start and what to say and where to go with it because there's so much to be said and there's so little time that in one brief message it's not possible to exhaust all of the thoughts that relate to that. Memorials have played an important part all down through history. I mean, you can go back thousands and thousands of years ago and find memorials. I think about Israel. When they were delivered from Egyptian bondage, and you remember that the Lord at that time instituted the Passover. And we've already talked about that to some extent, and how the Passover relates to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper being the fulfillment. It's the substance, and uh, the Passover is uh, is simply the shadow. It, it is a, a type, if you will, of that work which Jesus Christ was going to do. But the Passover was to commemorate that great event of them being delivered. And then one of the Israelites finally passed over Jordan. You'll remember that God told Joshua to set up 12 stones, and that was to be a memorial for the future generations. But with all of the various memorials throughout history, there's never been a memorial that will equal the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder Now, let me say four or five things about it being a reminder. As a memorial, memorials honor great lives. Now, we do that. Why? We do that in order to not just honor them, but to express our appreciation for the contribution they've made. You can take a tour throughout our country and you'd notice that there are erected monuments all across our country, in fact, around the world, and millions have traveled to see the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and Grant's tomb and on and on and on. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is in a class all by Himself. There's nothing or no one that can compare to Him. He's the one described as being altogether loving.
lovely. His life is without equal. And the unleavened bread is a picture of His sinlessness. So we, in partaking of the Lord's table, we are honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, expressing our appreciation for the great sacrifice that He made. But not only does a memorial honor great lives, a memorial recalls great deeds. And we think about the Lord's Supper and the greatest life that has ever been lived, and we think about the greatest single deed of all time, which is the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, whenever you look back through history and you think about all of those that have suffered and died, the price that they paid, and, and especially at this time of the year, it's easy for us to recall what our forefathers did in providing for us freedom. Isn't it marvelous that somebody had the, had the concern and the foresight and the fortitude that many long years ago they were willing to sacrifice everything so that we could enjoy the blessings that we have today. But again, that shrinks in significance whenever it, you try to compare it to what Jesus did. James Montgomery wrote the words to this poem, When to the cross I turn mine eyes and rest on Calvary, O Lamb of God, my sacrifice, I must remember Thee. And dear friend, that's what happens when we come to the Lord's table. When we partake of the elements, we are remembering what He did. That's why when we observe it, I, I always tell the people that, look, as we observe the Lord's table, and then as we dismiss, I, I want to encourage you to go straight to your cars and to go home. Have that fresh on your mind as you leave here, don't engage in some conversation that's going to, you know, blot out the wonderful sacrifice that Jesus made and get your mind off on the affairs of this world, but leave here thinking about Jesus. So memorial honors great lives. It recalls great deeds, but it also provides instruction. Whenever you erect a monument, you do so to provoke thought and to cause people to ask questions. Remember, there again, whenever the Lord is reminding Joshua to take the twelve stones out of Jordan and to sit them up, and here's what God says in Joshua chapter number 4 and verse 6, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Well, even so, the Lord's Supper gives us the opportunity to explain what Jesus did. Think about it this way. Teachers often use different object lessons to teach children. Uh, visual aids, it might be flannel graph, and you know, today it might be, a, might be a PowerPoint presentation. It might be something so simple as a chart or a map or whatever it is, but they're using these object lessons to convey truth. 
That is exactly what the Lord's Supper is all about. It is an object lesson, if you please, to teach us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we observe it, and those of you that are parents know very well what I'm talking about, and as, uh, as we observe it, it's just natural for the, for the kiddos to ask, well, why do you do this, and why do you do that, and what does this mean, and Children are inquisitive. They want to know. And it, listen, and it opens the door for us to teach them about the most important thing in all of the world. Uh, yesterday, before the funeral service, and some of you heard me make mention of this, but Roger Jr.'s uh, little boy had inquired about where Papa was. And, and that was the night before, and Roger had told him he's gone to be with Jesus. And so coming into the funeral service, the little boy walks up there and he looks at uh, the body that Troy lived in all of those years. And he said, uh, that's not Papa, it's just where he lived. And boy, he had it right, folks. I mean, he listen, he got it right. Little kids want to know. I've heard people say, well, I, you know, I'm not going to take my kids to a funeral. I, I, do, I want to shelter them from that. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I, I personally, you do whatever you want. I, I think children need to be exposed to the reality of, of death and it needs to be explained to them. And it, listen, it's a part of life and, you know, how, how long are you going to shelter them? I mean, they've got to come face to face with the reality. Well, when it comes to the worship of the Lord, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I am so appreciative of those who work with children and, and, and thank God for them and their ministries. Originally, Children's Church was started back during the days of the bus ministry, whenever, you know, we'd bring a bunch of kids in and their parents were not present, and consequently you've got to do something with all of those kids, and it's hard to corral all of them and to correct them and so forth. And so, the you know, the ideal thing is put them over here in the Children's Church, and, and that way it gives you time to bring everything down to their level and... And listen, I'm not opposing children's church, but I'm saying this. I think sometimes parents depend too much on that. I, 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 think, I think the children have a need to be exposed to what goes on in the church service. And I don't think we have to reduce everything to a child's level for them to, to really understand. I, the greatest compliment anybody ever gives me other than something about the truthfulness of the message is when somebody says, you know, that was so simple a child could understand it. Well, if, if I accomplished that, then I did my job. But children need to understand what's going on and what it's all about. And the Lord's table is an ideal time for us to teach them you know, as to the sacrifice that Christ made. Now, there's one other thing. In regards to it being a memorial, it also provides inspiration. Every patriotic person knows what it's like to have your heart to skip a beat and a tear come to your eye when you see old glory waving in the breeze and we sing the national anthem and there's just something that... 
even though we've heard it thousands of times, there's something that wells up within us and stirs our heart of every true American. Memorials inspire us. That's what they're designed to do. You see, we need more than just information. We need inspiration. The Lord's Supper provides that. I mean, God forbid that we partake of the Lord's Supper just in a cold, mechanical way, being satisfied with understanding what the elements represent. And so we go through the motions, but whenever we're stripped of our feelings, and now I understand that we live by faith, not by our feelings, and I realize that feelings can lead us astray. But feelings are extremely important when it comes to worshiping God. Back during the Great Awakening here in America, Jonathan Edwards was the man that God had used so, so greatly. And here's what happened. As the Great Revival swept the northeastern part of the United States, hard to imagine a revival being up there and multitudes being saved, Entire factories shutting down at noontime to have prayer meeting. It was absolutely amazing what was happening and up jumped the devil. And the big complaint was, that's just all a bunch of emotion. It got so serious that uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled, I believe it is, Holy Affection, I believe it is, and the strict meaning of that word, affection, has to do with our feelings. I, I have a copy of that book, and it's interesting reading, because here they are criticizing him and others because of the moving way in which they worship God. And you know, I, I've, I've often thought, in some of our Baptist churches, it's almost it's almost got that way to where... A lot of folks don't feel comfortable to raise their hands in worship. Uh, a lot of people don't feel comfortable shouting hallelujah or praise the Lord. And, uh, and that's a shame, I think. Not everybody is made up the same way. We, we all have a different emotional makeup. We all express ourselves in different ways. But we all should have the freedom the freedom to express our feelings in regards to our worship of the Lord. It shouldn't raise any eyebrows. It shouldn't cause any questions. But when we come to the Lord's table, wow, let us never do it in a cold, mechanical way, but let us partake of those elements in a way that inspires us, that moves us, We need that because all of the information in the world is not going to do any good if we're not inspired to to take that truth and do something with it. So again, I say that it is a reminder, it is a responsibility. But number three, the Lord's Supper is a revelation. Look at verse 26. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, Ye do show the Lord's death. In other words, he's telling us the Lord's Supper preaches a silent but powerful sermon. Notice the Greek word show there. 
It's found 17 times in the New Testament. It's translated preach or preached 10 times. It's translated show three times, declare or declaring two times, spoken of one time, and teach one time. So it's easy to see that the meaning of the word is what? It is to declare, it is to preach as it were, and that's why I say it's a silent but powerful sermon. I have never in my life ever preached a sermon that was the equal of us observing the Lord's Supper. I could stand up here for an hour. I could prepare for a week. I could be at my very best. I could use all of the best illustrations. I could, you know, just do a, you know, a great job, but there are going to be more imperfections in my sermon And it'll be less meaningful than that simple observance of the Lord's Supper. Just nothing could be more simple. But it's conveying a message. And all of us as the Lord's people need to be mindful that when we do that, notice we do show we are preaching the Lord's death. And so here is a vivid reminder of what the ordinance is that His body was broken for us, His blood was shed for us. And this is our way of proclaiming that to others. It is a revelation. We're revealing to others what God has done for us. Now, there's one more thing, and I suppose there's many things that could be said, but there's one other thing that relates to the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a responsibility on our part. It's not just a reminder for us and a revelation to us, but it's also a reassurance. Notice he says, you do show forth the Lord's death, and notice these next words, till He come. The Lord's Supper is not only a command, it's not only a memorial and a testimony, but now listen, it is a prophecy. The Lord's Supper causes us to look both directions. It causes us to look backward to what the Lord has already done and causes us to look forward to the fact that He is coming again. You do show forth the Lord's death till He come. M.D. Dodd, a Southern Baptist many years ago, wrote these words, He said, this expression, till He come... Now, I want you to listen to this. It might be you've never heard this before. I find it interesting. Here's what he said. This expression, till He come, was the password among the early Christians. When they met one another in the crowded streets of the city, in the dark places of night, or elsewhere, their word of greeting and recognition was, till He come. The pagan rulers, officers of the law, and peoples were so bitter in their persecutions of the Christians that it was necessary for the Christians to maintain much secrecy. That's why they worshipped in the catacombs and so forth. And he goes on and says, One can easily imagine how the face of a Christian would light up as he met someone whom he did not know, from whom he might fear bodily injury when that one would give the password, till he 
come. That password would ensure kindness, consideration, and fellowship. But this password would do even more. It would fan the flame of hope and joyful anticipation of the world to come in the hearts of those who were being persecuted and tried in this world. It would stimulate, strengthen, and create courage and brighten hope for carrying on until He come. Every time I've ever read that, it's, just, it's moved my heart to try to think about those, those early Christians. And like Jesus said, they were hated, they were despised, they were imprisoned, tortured, and put to death. And can you imagine in the darkness of the night, you're walking alone down the street in the city and a group of people, a group of men perhaps, are coming your way. You're in fear of your life. It might be that they look big and rugged and mean, and in the darkness you, you fear the encounter, and suddenly you hear someone whisper, Till he comes. And then you know everything's all right. May I remind you that that is the one thing that's going to make everything all right. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18, Paul, having spoken about the rapture and the coming of the Lord and encouraging them and tells them to sorrow not as others which have no hope. And then he made this statement, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus promised His fearful disciples, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Upon the observance of the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, Jesus said, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Even Gibbon in his great work, The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire, said the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium appears to have been the reigning sediment of all orthodox believers. B.H. Carroll said, One who does not believe in the Lord's personal, visible, audible return has no place at the Lord's table. Listen, we believe it because Jesus said He was going to come again. And every time that we observe the Lord's Supper, we are making a proclamation to others that we believe that Jesus will come again just like He said. You've heard people say, well, you know, the Lord is coming. If the Lord doesn't, you know, tarry, well, I've got news for you. The Bible says that He's going to come, and it says, and He that shall come will come and will not tarry. He's not going to be a second late. He's going to be right on time. And although we don't know exactly when it is, we know from the Bible that that is our blessed hope. That one of these days He's going to come, He's going to make all of the wrongs right, and He's going to set up His kingdom 
Remember what Jesus said, I'll not drink of this vine again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. And when he sets up his kingdom right here on this earth, I'm not talking about up on some feathery cloud floating around in the sky. The Bible says He's going to come and to reign and that we shall rule and reign with Him for a thousand years here on this same earth. Can, can you imagine us sitting at the Lord's table with Him there? Wow! He that shall come will come. I feel like John out there on the lonely Isle of Patmos. And when he closes out the record of the book of Revelation, he closes it out by saying this, Even so come Lord Jesus. I, I think we all should feel that way. Even so come Lord Jesus. We ought to live in the light of that promise. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, it is us giving a prophecy. You, you didn't know he was a prophet, did you? Well, you're not really, but you're making a prophecy here by declaring that you believe in the return of Jesus Christ. That's where we pin all of our hopes. As bad as this old world is, as wicked as the world can be. And sometimes we're just nearly overwhelmed by fear as we anticipate things to come. But the good news is, the good news is this, that regardless of how bad the news might be at the time, the best is still yet to come. Because Jesus is going to split the clouds and receive us unto Himself. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Father, remind us not only tonight, but as we here in a few weeks, as we partake of the Lord's table, remind us on that occasion. May, may we never partake of the bread and the, of the fruit of the vine without being mindful of the fact that one day that we'll be in Your very presence. And one day we'll celebrate the very thing that we commemorate in the Lord's Supper. Lord, I can't think of anything any more serious. And at the same time, I can't think of anything that ought to make us more joyful than to sit at the Lord's table and to partake of those elements and be reminded that as undeserving as we are, heaven gave its very best that we might become the children of God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. I really don't even hardly know how to give an invitation.